This interview was recorded on June 25th, 2020. Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Matt Vaughn. Based near Denver, Matt is a full-stack software architect and developer and popular speaker who builds enterprise applications and focuses in particular on the Angular web development or web application framework. You can follow him on Twitter at AngularLicious and check out his websites at AngularLicious with a .us and AngularArchitecture.com. You can also check out his Angular Architecture podcast at AngularArchitecture.com slash podcast and the blog at AngularArchitecture.com slash blog. Matt is the author of the Lean Pub books, Angular Architecture Patterns, Apply Enterprise Principles and Patterns to Build Amazing Applications, and the guide, Effective Angular Code Reuse Strategies and Techniques. In this interview, we're going to talk about Matt's background and career, professional interests, his books, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience using Lean Pub to self-publish. So thank you, Matt, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Certainly, my pleasure. Glad to be here. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little, little bit about where you grew up and how you found your way to a career in tech. Oh, good question. Uh, well, I live in Denver or near Denver, Colorado. I've uh, born and raised here in Colorado, lived here all my life. Uh, brief stint, uh, I did attend the University of Miami and studied jazz performance and also studied jazz performance at the University of Denver here uh, locally. So music really was my first love, I think, uh, for just things in general, um, as well as sports. Big, big sports fan. I see you're probably a hockey fan, too. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So growing up in Denver, the Denver Broncos, my favorite team. Um, I play saxophone and have played uh, all throughout school and into college and even did a little bit of uh, gigging uh, after school and uh, uh, played in several bands and clubs for a bit and got married, um, started having a family and started uh, thinking about what do I need to do to make things work? And uh, technology just kind of fell into its place and uh, started uh, developing web applications back in 1998. So it's been, it's been a long time. So, uh, but uh, the technology has changed a lot over the years, but uh, that's kind of how I fell into it, uh, just out of need. And uh, it was first a hobby and uh, became something that I thought I was good at and uh, took a dive and decided to do it full time. You write in your bio about your author bio about being self-taught. Uh, how yeah. did you go about teaching yourself? It's it's really interesting. There's sort of like the time capsules in this interview of like the, pe the period of yeah. history when someone started learning stuff really like, of course, in, like yeah. implications for what they did, you know? Well, back then there was no Stack Overflow. There was no YouTube. Um, if you really wanted to learn technology, you could, you'd have to buy books and read them. And um, I didn't know, even know that at the time that there were actually books on tech and uh, script and how to build web web apps and and things like that. And uh, I was uh, out with my wife one afternoon and running some errands, and she ran into a different store. I ran into the bookstore. And I saw on the shelf this used book on uh, uh, ASP, um, Active Server Pages. It's a Microsoft technology with VB Script. So that kind of dates me. So pretty old technology. But I saw that book and I'm like, that's exactly what I'm doing at work. And I've been struggling for months trying to figure things out. And I opened the pages of the book, started flipping through it, and all the answers are there. Um, I bought the book. It was the best $19 I think I ever spent. And um, from that point forward, it was. Um, just buying and reading books. And um, I got an opportunity to uh, 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 join a consulting company here in uh, Denver. And 
what I did is I actually printed all of the code for every application uh, that we had um, in our environment. There were probably about 50 applications. So I picked the, the biggest ones and I printed all the code. And to and from work, I commuted on the bus. I would just review the code and just look at the code and study it and learn why they were doing it, what they were doing it, and trying to figure out how it worked. And for me, it was uh, first just reading and, and studying, reading and studying continuously for, it seemed like, years. Um, but then uh, when I got uh, into more consulting, uh, the mentors uh, really helped me and guided me and, and kind of pointed me in different directions, like, uh, for example, design patterns. Um, I heard architects talking about them. I, I had no idea or clue what they were. Uh, I just took a few notes. I need to figure what figure out what this is. So I went and found a book on it, started reading it, and started figuring out how to apply these things in uh, the applications I was building. And then uh, another consulting company, uh, these two architects, they they probably thought I was their little Padawan, and uh, I certainly was. I'm like these guys. They taught me so so much amazing. Uh, things about technology and architecture and just how to think through problems, how to organize your code, how to structure it. And they always challenged me to do different things. I would come up with ideas and they'd say, yeah, figure it out. Show us what you have. And um, I'd go home and spend nights and weekends and nights and just figuring things out and building things. And um, I've built uh, over the years, uh, two or three code generators. Um, I've built uh, uh frameworks for processing business logic, uh, different business rule engines for .NET, C-sharp uh, frameworks. I've built uh, a TypeScript rule engine that you can use with Angular applications, things like that. So for me, it's uh, self-taught means just a continuous learning process. And I think really it's just having the right people point you in the right direction, say, these are good things to learn. And here are some resources here and there or just figuring out where those resources are. And for me, um, it wasn't uh, it wasn't an idea or a, a possibility for me to go back to school and get a, a CS degree. Um, I already, I already went to college. <laughs> I, already, I have a family, I have a job. Um, I have a lot of things on my plate. So um, continuous learning, uh, even, even now today, uh, I've been doing this for, for quite a while. Um, I'm still, hitting the books, but really I'm like today I spent uh, at least two hours, hour and a half just studying um, how modules work uh, in depth on, uh, in Angular uh, from um, um, this uh, website. And just when I understand those things, I, I take copious notes. I have notebooks um, going back uh, over 20 years. In fact, uh, cleaning out my office here, I have every notebook that I've ever used uh, at work. Um, here uh, in, on my shelf behind me. And um, that helps me to learn things because I, if I can teach them or write them down um, and see the picture and how they uh, relate to other things, then for me, that, that helps me to learn things much easier. Thanks very much for sharing that story. Um, one, it leads me to ask a question that actually comes up uh, pretty often on the podcast when I'm interviewing LeanPub authors, which is if they didn't go to computer science they didn't get a formal computer science degree, do they wish they had if they'd had the opportunity to do so? And if they did get one, do they regret having done so? Or if they were starting out now, would they just do it completely differently given, you know, the stack overflows and all of the incredible resources available? So the form of that question to you would be, you said you, you'd already been to college, you had a family, you had responsibilities and things like that. But if you, if you could have, would you have, do you think it would have been better to have done a degree? Well, I, 
I think it might have fast tracked my uh, career a little bit. Um, so having to kind of learn um, on your own and teach yourself um, over the years with the books, I think um, I probably could have used my time a little more, a little more wisely. But um, I think I learned a lot of different things along the way. And I would say that personally for me, I wouldn't uh, trade that. Um, now I see, um, I see what computer science um, teaches uh, um, our developers and engineers today. And I really appreciate having them on my team um, to work with because of their perspective and, and things that they know. Um, and I've learned a lot of those things as well, but there are things that uh, I have really paid a lot of attention to and, and studied in real in depth that they really didn't touch on very much in college. So there's a balance there. And I think when I, when I think of teams and uh, development teams, I, I, I want diversity on my team. I want people with different backgrounds um, and different skill sets and resources. I don't want every developer to have the same skill set to look just like the next guy um, next to them. Um, that diversity is really what um, um, creates uh, uh, innovation and different ideas and such. So I wouldn't trade it. In fact, uh, the same question about would I go to school for music again? No, I wouldn't. Oh, really? I, I think, I think that kind of structure, I mean, I love the people, the bands and the music and, and the experience, but learning music, uh, theoretically, uh, first, um, I think it takes away the, 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 um, uh, the basics or the, the really the base elements of what music is. And when what music is something that you hear and feel and you can think about it later, but that's really what it is first. And that's how, what, what people, why people fall in love with it. But you, if you learn how music is constructed and how symphonies or compositions are made and all the different structures and, and the, the harmonics and the melodies and all that stuff, when you listen to music, sometimes you think of that and it takes away from the enjoyment of it sometimes. So I find myself having to really focus, have to focus on not thinking about that so I can really enjoy music sometimes. Yeah, I think I know what you mean. My own, my own version of that from my experience was I studied English literature. Um, and I remember one time explaining my doctoral thesis proposal to my supervisor and she said, that sounds terribly unpleasant. <laughs> and I, it, and it, honestly, it had never occurred to me that like reading could be for seriously, could also be for pleasure. Yeah. Like it was, it was just the, the, the unpleasantness, like they're, they're sort of like, no, it wasn't that I wanted it to be unpleasant or it needed to be unpleasant to be serious. It was just that pleasure was just, and passion were just like completely orthogonal to what I was doing in my analysis of things from an academic perspective. Right. A lot of people just read to escape. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, and it's, it's interesting too, when you, when you do study things on a theoretical level, it, it is, it is difficult to then use them to relate to them in the same way other people do. And there's, there's this element where like it incredibly dramatically increases the quality of the experience that you have. Like if you're a trained architect and you're looking at a building or something like that, but it does take away, it can take away a kind of straightforward enjoyment of things. It does. Yeah. And it, it's, if you were a chef, um, can you really go to a restaurant and enjoy a meal? <laughs> you're probably thinking, <laughs> how do they do this? What are these spices? Uh, things like that. But on, on the other hand though, I think um, 
being a, a musician first in life, um, when I approach problems uh, at work or technical or business problems or solutions that we need to solve technically, for me, it's really very easy to decompose things and to see how one thing relates to another and and how they relate from one end to this other end in terms of workflows and sequences and things like that. And for me, um, designing software is easy. Um, I, I enjoy starting with a blank sheet of paper. Um, give me a concept. We can build this. And for me, the, I, I love doing that. And I think it partly comes from uh, musical background, uh, jazz, and just, you know, loving um, things conceptually like that. And just, you know, knowing how to think through uh, problems in a different way. Uh, in the next part of the interview, when we get to your book, I'm sure we'll be talking about design patterns and what what you mean by architecture in the context of software and things like that. And I'm really looking forward to that. But before we do that, uh, it's become a common feature of the podcast in the last couple of months to devote a little bit of time to talking about how the pandemic has affected the area where the interviewee lives and the people around them and how it's affected their lives. So if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about uh, how your community has been affected and how it's affected you. Yeah. Um... You know, I didn't realize how serious it was um, until uh, work started talking about it. And they s- said, uh, we're, we're going to schedule a, a day where everyone works from home just to see if we can make it work. And actually, we uh, started a day early. Someone um, thought they had uh, coronavirus and they worked literally 10 feet from me. And um so everyone uh, was basically told uh, we were, we're going to start working from home. And um, the person was tested. I didn't, I didn't know uh, if I was exposed or not. Um, I have uh, family here, young children, uh, my wife. She's very concerned about those things. And I literally had to self-quarantine in the basement oh my. Uh, until, uh, we found, until I, we got the results from this individual at work. And so, um, so I was, um, I started this off in, uh, it was around the first week of March and, um, I was, uh, self-quarantined in my basement, uh, in this room here <laughs> without my backdrops and cool lighting and microphone. And, you know, I hadn't, um, things switched around a little bit. And, um, so I worked down here. I, I, I slept, uh, in the basement. Um, I ate my meals down here. And, uh, so it, it was kind of a rough start for a few days, so it really kind of got me to appreciate uh, how serious things are. And then, um, you know, the the news and everything kind of um, really kind of, you know, made it made it more of a reality and such. And even newscasts, um, they would uh, have drones flying over literally the parts of Denver where I work, the same street even. And um, no cars and uh, nobody on the street, no people walking around. And this is a very popular uh, area in Denver called Rhino. Um, it's popular for startup companies. It's popular for microbreweries, um, restaurants. So there's people there early in the morning till late at night continuously. And it was just odd to see it just completely shut down with with nobody there. So when I saw that, um, that kind of kind of hit hit home. I mean, Denver's been my town forever and I've never, never seen it like that. Um, so, um, but, uh, I think from a professional level, um, it's, it's helped me, uh, to connect more, I guess, with my team. Uh, we 90, 90% of the work we did on the last project was uh, while we we're quarantined. Um, 
and uh, we released uh, a product in less than four months. And uh, I, I would have to say it, it was either defect free or they couldn't find one the day it was released. So it was a very high quality uh, effort by the entire team. And I think the tooling that we have and the collaboration that we did, um, you know, just remotely together working um, was really cool. And it shows that it can be done and it can even be better sometimes than working in an office. Even everyone's there, but everyone has their headphones on and no one's talking to each other. So it seems like people are communicating more um, that you're, kind of stuck at home. It seems like, um, people are more caring. I walk my dog, um, in the neighborhood, uh, on a daily basis and my two Huskies, I have two Huskies and it's, it's different to see people. Hey, how you doing? They're waving at you and talking to you. And it's like, you know, six months ago you'd walk and you'd see nobody out there. Nobody be waving to you. <laughs> and I think it's just make, makes everybody a little more awake. Um, to life and what it means. Yeah, yeah. I uh, one thing, one striking memory I have is uh, of when things sort of got serious here in Victoria and British Columbia, when people started, you know, really changing the way they behaved. I saw something. I saw more people walking around. That's still true, but couples holding hands. I had just basically this. Just wasn't something people did. Something people did here. But I, I, I've worked from home forever, and so I, and I yeah. work like looking out over my balcony, and I see this street all day. And um, yeah, couples walking around holding hands became a thing. Yep. Yeah. Uh, families uh, pushing their children in, in the carriers and uh, walking their dogs. I, I've never seen so many people walking their dogs uh, since this last spring. And I, I think it's awesome. <laughs> so yeah. Um, yeah. Me, me too. Um, so do you think, do, do you miss the office? Uh, I, um, I don't. <laughs> I miss some parts of the office. Um, I like going in first thing in the morning, getting getting a cup of coffee, and you know uh, maybe chatting with uh, uh, the cube mate next to you, and just you know seeing what's going on and, and such. I, I miss a little bit of that. Um, um, I I miss kind of not knowing what day it is of the week for some reason. When you get out and about and you're traveling to and from work, you you kind of know what day it is I seem to kind of be in a in a rut and um not in a rut but it's it's a different routine um and it's atypical so I think it's throws me off track a little bit um I love uh food and restaurants and such so I love going out to to lunch and I have all my little favorite eateries uh in Denver and and such and um I miss that uh, probably the most um so, and do you yeah. get a sense that those things are going to be coming back soon in Denver? Oh, well, you know, a lot of the bigger restaurants and the ones that, um, yeah, are chains or whatnot, the, they're doing fine. And even some of the microbreweries are coming back and, um, and such. Uh, and a lot of them have been doing curbside takeout ever since. But um, one of my favorite little restaurants in uh, North Denver, um, I've tried calling there a few, about three times over the last uh, few weeks. And um, and I checked online too, and it says they're closed uh, permanently. And I was like, oh, that's my oh, favorite man. restaurant. And when this thing took off, I'm thinking, oh, there's one. If there's one restaurant in this whole city that I don't want to see go away, it's that one, and it's gone. <laughs> oh, well, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I don't know. That. I don't know if they'll come back. But yeah, I mean, it. I'm the kind of person. Uh, I, I've been going to that restaurant for uh, about 25 years. 
and I order the same thing every time. So I, I have my little restaurant spots that I go to and I just order the same thing. And I have restaurants literally that I've had the same, same meal, the same, the same thing I've ordered for 25, 30 years. Um, so yeah, kind of well, set my ways there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm, I'm a lot like that as well. And I have a single thing that I like to get at restaurants once I've settled upon it. And, and uh, that's uh, the anticipation of that thing is a big part of, of the enjoyment of going. Well, I really hope that um, things get back to being as safe as they can be as soon as possible for you. And so you can start going back to these, these places. Um, getting back to the main, main sort of course of the interview. So just before we talk about your, your book, Angular Architecture Patterns, I wanted to ask you about code generators. You mentioned you'd built a couple of them earlier on. And if you could just talk a little bit about what a code generator is and what it's used for. Yeah, certainly. Um, well, uh, you want to use a code generator to basically um, scale your your efficiency or velocity of a team. So a lot of times in, in uh, software development, um, especially enterprise development, there's a lot of code that is very cookie cutter, very recipe driven. It's the same over and over again. And maybe the inputs change and there's very little in terms of variance, but there's a lot of that code. Um, so you can create templates and you can have inputs if they're well-defined. Um, and basically these templates can generate uh, certain parts of your code. And when you do that, uh, you can literally shave um, man, man days or man weeks and sometimes man months um, of time off of a project. So, um, back in 2005, uh, code generation was a pretty hot topic. There was a, a, a lot going on in that space, and there still is. Um, but I think it's changed and, uh, and morphed into like scaffolding. Um, so you use inputs and things to generate or scaffold code, and then you customize it. Um, and so it gives you a little more flexibility, but it still gives you like 80, 90% of that code generation aspect. Um, but at the time I was working for a consulting company and, um, so we were working on code generation engines and such, uh, so that we could bid these projects and give them a fixed price. And because we can do it much faster and, um, uh, more, much more quickly, uh, our, our margin of revenue was higher because of that. And so we were using it that way. And for me, um, there's some, some aspects of that in terms of how it relates to architecture is that one, you have to have an architecture that is um, very reliable um, and uh, consistent in how it's done and how it's made and uh, the certain like layers of the application and specific parts. And if you see these patterns that these are the same thing over and over, then that's a candidate for cogeneration or scaffolding. And um, so, yes, um, I've built uh, generators um, that can build entire um, uh, service, uh, like uh, microservice stacks um, from the web API all the way down to uh, the database. And the inputs are uh, a lot of times the, the database schemas. Uh, we create entity models from that. And then those entity, entity models have attributes on all the properties and such. And all that information is just like metadata that provides the input. You match that with the template and then you output code that can be compiled um, for an application. 
Um, so yeah, it saves a huge amount of time, but they're very tedious uh, to work through. Uh, sometimes you could spend two or three weeks on, or, or more, uh, uh, month maybe a month or more trying to get everything just right and you generate over and over and you're like oh that's wrong then you fix the template then you redo it and it's kind of a over churning process until you get it right but once you have your your engine and your templates uh good then uh, you're ready to go and very effective you talk uh well, let, let's move on now to talking about your book, Angular Architecture Patterns. And uh, you, so you've talked about architecture a couple of times already. And I was wondering, you talk in the book, you have a little section at the beginning where you talk about the, the meaning of the term architecture in the context of software and why it's an important concept. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, when people hear the word architecture, they, they may think a lot of different things. And when it relates to software, I... I think it really kind of means the same, the same type of things and or concerns that people who have been um, using architecture for centuries of time. So I it can relate it back to building pyramids. Um, they had tools, they had materials, they probably had a plan, they had a design. Um, they must have had a model of the pyramid at, as a smaller shape or size and said, yeah, we want to build something like this, but it needs to be huge, right? Um, so they have the goals and the objectives that are well-defined. Um, and they have to choose their materials. And choosing materials to last, they got to figure out, well, how are we going to work with these things? They probably had to build tools to work with those materials. So when I look at... Um, modern architecture in software, it's really the same thing. We need to consider all facets of the application or the objective, not just um, what you're building, but what tools are you going to use? What are the materials are you going to use? What are What is the design or the plan? Now, for me, I, I think of it as this triangle. And if you are missing one of those elements, if you don't have a design or plan, how do you know what tools and materials are going to work? If you have a design and plan and you don't consider tools and you just start working with materials, how are you going to make that work? Um, so in talking about those three things, um, you need that really that um, objective goal setting. You need the design and analysis phase in, in software that is like missing. And, and a lot of companies just fail to do this or, go through it too quickly to identify the information of what an application is. It's the W's it's the, it's who it's why they're going to use it. Who's using it. When are they going to use it? Where are they going to use it? What are they going to be doing? If you define all those things, you really truly understand what you're going to do. But most software and technical people jump to the H part. How they jump to how first, because that's really the fun part, writing code. But for me, if you do those other things first, then it makes writing the code much more enjoyable and, and easier because um, things just work out much better because you have those things in place. And um, so to me, that's, that's what truly architecture is. It's, it's part all of those things. It's the experience of the individuals uh, that understand the business and the objectives. It's the experience of individuals who know the tools and and how to use them and also how to execute that, that play or that recipe or that pattern or those architectures to execute and maintain that discipline to, no, to not deviate 
So can you imagine if people deviated while building pyramids? They wouldn't be around today. Um, if they switched materials halfway, halfway through or, or stopped using the plan <laughs> or the, the, the pattern. So that's, that's kind of how I approach software development is uh, from those aspects. It's really interesting. Yeah, there's another important who in the um, design of software, which is the coders. Uh, so it's not just that the, there might be, it might not just be you that's working on this code all the time. It's probably going to be a team of people. It's going to be passed on to other people in the future. And so right. that, 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 that who has to be kept in mind as well when you're doing design, right? Exactly. So that's, that's part of that execution phase is to make sure that you're, what you're writing is consistent. It's maintainable. It's readable. It's of high quality, which means that there's tests to verify and validate that the things that you said work according to the plan actually work. You quantify that. And you're, you're writing the code as if you're writing it for your team member next to you or for you six months from now when you have to come back and revisit or add a new feature or fix something. Um, so it's that kind of mentality that um, it's, it's a team approach. It should be a team approach. Um, and I think, um, you know, those, those are, those aren't easy skills to acquire or easy to do. So it takes a lot of discipline and hard work and it's a continuous effort. You just don't have great architecture once in the beginning and you still have it at the end. You have to continue to look at it and say, oh, did we do this right? Oh no, we have to fix that to make sure that it's according to the plan or our standards. And, and, and that way, um, that who, that person who comes back. Um, it's enjoyable for them to work on it as well. Not, 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 uh, and that's usually not the case in software development. It's, people don't like doing maintenance work or fixing bugs because it's horrible to find one where to fix it. And when you fix it, you probably break, break two or three other things. So that's not a happy place. Yeah, it's interesting. We'll maybe talk a little bit about your, your concept of a code scene investigator a little bit later, <laughs> which I just absolutely loved that. Um, but you you uh, you you um, mentioned something very important there, which is the impact that planning, the positive impact that planning in advance can have on revenue. And um, it's really interesting you said that because uh, one of the reasons, and I know this mostly from interviewing people for the podcast, not from personal experience or professional experience so much, but one of the reasons that it's difficult to get that many companies don't actually do a lot of planning is in advance is that there might be someone at a manager level or an executive level. Who's like, how much code have you written already? And then they have these metrics for like, you know um, uh, how much progress has been made and a product manager might have to report up how much progress has been made. So what have you built? And so doing extensive planning in advance can sometimes from that kind of structural perspective, look like nothing's getting done. And, but one of the things that I've been told by battle-hardened people before is that if you can bring up the positive impact on the company's revenue when you're justifying this uh, kind of change in a, in a company's development culture, that can really help. So if you were trying to, if, you were, if there's someone listening to this who's like, oh man, I wish I could convince you know, my boss or my team lead to do more planning, what would you suggest or one or two things they can think about doing when they're presenting their case? Yeah, I, I think in that, um, it was a, you're quoting the guide that I just wrote. And I think I, I wrote a sentence there. It's, if you, if you do the right things now, it's going to enable you to do the right things later. And so, 
sometimes uh, it may appear that uh, you're moving slow in the beginning. Um, but to me, most of these applications, if they're long lived, it's more of a marathon than a sprint. Um, so you have to really think of um, the longevity of the application that you're working on. And if, if it is a key component of revenue for your company, that's the way you're going to look at it. So you're not going to cut corners in the beginning just to appear you're making huge progress. Because what that'll do is it'll create a certain amount of technical debt that sometimes you can't overcome. And if you think of a team of just even a few developers, say you have three developers and they work for five days, one week, that's uh, 15 man days of development. What percentage of that is technical debt? And then you, you extrapolate that over time. How much technical debt are you acquiring in just a month or three months or six months? And after one year of that, um, you probably have so much technical debt that you'll never overcome it. So really, in the beginning is the right time to do it the right way, to make sure you have everything in place, make sure the foundation is there so that you can build upon it. Because going back to the foundation after the house is on it ain't going to happen. You're going to have to tear it all down if you want to do something like that. So that's why even in, you know, home building or whatever, I mean, the, the, the time and attention is on the foundation. The home I live on, uh, live in right now, uh, they did a soil test. And where I live, it's expansive soil. So they had to do caissons down to the bedrock. And then on top of the caissons, these uh, steel girders across. And then they put, um, they laid the foundation around it. And, and my house does not move. So it's probably even better than the house next to me who doesn't have have that. But the foundation is the important thing. So that's that's really what you want to do is if you want to be able to be nimble and fast in the future and continually as you develop, then do it the right way from the beginning. In your Architecture Patterns book, you also talk about the distinction between adhering to principles as opposed to following rules, which yeah. I that distinction really appeals to me. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you mean by that. Yeah. Well, um, I think in general, human nature, people don't like rules. And uh, I don't like them either. I think I'm a, I'm a rule breaker. And I think um, people who've known me all my life can probably document all kinds of scenarios in my life where I've broken rules or whatever, or kind of bucked the system. But for me, um, principles um, never change over time. Or to you know, rules change according to culture, time, politics, you know, what have you. But principles are pretty much, they're just bound by just something that makes sense. And uh, they last and they're easy to grasp and understand. And for example, uh, in software development, uh, there's a single responsibility principle and a separation of concerns principle. If you studied two principles, those two, if you study those two, I guarantee you're going to go 80 or 90% of delivering awesome applications. Your software is going to look great. It's going to do what it needs to just by following those two patterns. But that means a lot. So it's like, well, how do I implement those principles? What does that mean then? So that's really when you start studying architecture and, um, and maybe talking about the architecture book, like what is a layered architecture well, that gives you your separation of concerns. And you have these boundaries between these layers. Okay, um, what about single responsibility? Well, 
it makes sense in life and in your house where you live, everything has a little responsibility. Um, Every room in your house has a responsibility. Um, Every thing in your house has responsibility. Your lawnmower is responsible for mowing the lawn. So you keep it in the garage or the shed or whatnot. It's not in your living room. It doesn't belong there. So just like our software, there are things that shouldn't be here or there. They need to be moved to the right place or put in the right place. And so for me, um, these principles um, really guide that. And if you're following those two things, uh, two principles, I mean, there's a lot more principles out there. Like there's books on them. There's the solid principles. Uh, There's clean architecture patterns, uh, principles and such. Um, just follow those things. Um, and in, in talking about that, uh, just remind me, I ordered this book. It's the 20th anniversary of the pragmatic programmers book. <laughs> uh, a friend of mine I was working with gave, gave me a copy of this book and it's probably one of the best gifts I ever got because this book is just end to end principles and they're very easy to learn and, and follow through. You'll, you'll learn them and, and start applying them immediately. That's how effective they are. And that's the cool thing about principles. Um, they're easy to learn um, and, and to uh, start applying. And so once you have the principle in mind, then you start seeing where you can apply them. Yeah, it's really, that's just a really fascinating way, fascinating way of putting it, that, I, that they're, they're a kind of a guide, but they allow you, when you're in a situation, a principle allows you to see what's before you and what the opportunities are. Whereas opposed to if all you've been kind of doing is following rules in any, in any, pardon me, in any area, when you end up in an unfamiliar situation, all you, all you have to do is available to you is to ask what's the rule for this new situation. You don't have any kind of generative capability. Yeah. It's kind of like a, someone who's a cook and the only way they can cook is by following a recipe. Um, But if they don't understand the principles of cooking, can they ever create something on their own? without a recipe. So sometimes people are like that. Yeah. Like, well, what do I need to do? Tell me what's the recipe? What, what do I need to do here? What's the, the sequence, the one, two, three of it. And to me, it, it, it depends. It's up to you. Uh, it's up to the application, the context. It's so many different factors. So learn your principles and you'll find that those will guide you a lot, lot further than uh, trying to learn rules. Yeah, yeah, I, I could talk about this topic for a long time, but there's there's actually a really important application of it to just general civic conduct. You mentioned that people don't like rules, people don't like to follow rules, and so people who relate to sort of conventional things in the in our life, like um, you need to signal when you turn as j- just a rule, then they might not they might feel angry that they have to do it. They might not do it if they don't feel like it or if they just don't think it applies. But if you understand. No, no, this is a principle. You signal every time you turn because you're not fully aware of everything that's going on in the environment. And there are other people looking at you and you're get, telling them what you're doing. So now they know what decision to make. So when you see that it's a principle rather than just something imposed on you, then you don't feel like you're being abused or manipulated or punished for being made to follow it. Right. Yep. Yeah. yeah um, definitely. Uh and so uh, the last thing I wanted to ask you about this book was um, when you've talked about patterns, what, what is a pattern in this context? Yeah, um, I think patterns have emerged over time. And um, I think the patterns may have already have always been there in real life and in nature. Um, you know, look at our solar system. There's patterns there, right? 
and how things work in that. There's patterns here on, on our planet Earth, uh, you know, the, the, the water system and different things and how things work and such. And so sometimes uh, patterns are, have been there probably all the while and we just discover them or give them a name and such. And I think what's happened in uh, software engineering um, is that really smart people just do things in a very effective, efficient way. And by doing that, you look at that and you say, oh, that's a great pattern. Um, let's give that a name. Let's use that. Um, and sometimes you may be doing something very novel and a new pattern emerges based on a different pattern or something. So it's not to say that um, there are no new patterns um, because there always are different ways of structuring things or organizing things differently um, and such. And so patterns are just a way to communicate um, about something that really exists, even if it's logically in code or uh, in software, or if it um, is a pattern in building architecture or building anything and, um, and such. So it's just a way to communicate about something. So when you talk about a pattern and somebody can recognize that or they can go somewhere and read something about it, you're on the same page. You're running the same play. Um, think of that coach who's calling the play on the field. It's a pattern. Uh, the the in hockey, there's a there's a play run, and every the forwards have a certain uh, route or pattern are going to take towards the net or something. So, if they don't follow that pattern, nobody is going to know where they're going to be or should be. But if everybody knows the pattern then there's that sense of knowing how to do something, how to run that play, how to execute, um, how to structure this. And um, in sports, it's definitely there in sports, in, any, in, in most sports, um, hockey, basketball, football, for sure, things like that. There's lots of patterns and um, plays and such. And everybody has to study those playbooks and rule, not rules, but study the plays and know if they do need to make a micro adjustment, they're still running the essence of the pattern and sticking within the frame of the play and it's still effective. Um, but they may, may, may make micro adjustments and you see quarterbacks do that all the time uh, when they walk up to the line of scrimmage, you know, and we have to do that also in software. I mean, you're not going to say here's the pattern and it's going to work 100% of the time. There may be circumstances where you have to deviate, but that's a micro adjustment. Yeah, moving moving on to talk. This is actually the perfect opportunity to move on to talk about your your guide, effective Angular code reuse strategies and techniques. In there, you write about playbooks, and not just in the kind of the abstract sense that you were just describing them, but actually, it just so happens that there are you know um, development teams that have literal think playbooks that they write that they call playbooks, and these are guides for what to do. But the the funny coincidence is that just last night I'm I'm rewatching the show Smallville. I don't know if you ever saw that the show about like Superman as a teenager, yeah. basically. And the episode I was watching last night, there's a football game at the beginning uh, for the high school team and it's raining really heavily. And the quarterback gets sacked because he took too long and, and didn't even try to pass the ball. And the coach gets really angry at him. And it's at night, by the way, too. So it's dark out. And the coach says, why didn't you throw the ball? You know, we were running this play. And you were supposed to throw to so-and-so. And he goes, well, because the rain was so heavy, I couldn't see him. And the coach, who's the villain of the episode, um, grabs him by the fat face mask and goes, you don't need to see him. You know where he is. We've run this play a thousand times. 
Right. Um, and it was just so striking. But anyway, I thought I'd bring up that funny coincidence that just, just last night, this sort of perfect, perfect example of, of exactly what you're describing. Um, exactly. That's a great, that's a great analogy. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's funny. Um, and in the book, uh, speaking, speaking of funny, you actually have a, a really a fun section where you um, talk about like the importance of reusing code and why that can be so valuable. And you have a great line. If you want a chicken sandwich, do you purchase some chickens and raise them in your backyard? Uh, and of course, you know, maybe, maybe in COVID times, people are doing that a little bit more than they used to, but, yeah. uh, but, um, but it's a really good, it's a really important idea that, um, you know, we don't, we don't, when we do things in our normal life, we don't build everything from scratch and building software is a really, there's a really important application of that idea in software as well. Yeah. I, I think when you learn how to code and build things, or if you're a musician, you know, you know how to compose and write music, like I could. I write this from scratch, <laughs> right? And I think developers, um, particularly, um, I've seen cases where they build, they build amazing things. Yes, you be, but you didn't need to build that, and it doesn't even relate to the business that the company is trying to achieve here. But that's really cool that you did that. But it adds really no value. Um, so. For me, I, I think it's unpopular sometimes is to say that, like, well, that adds no value. It's it's really the use of that that is the value. So whether you make it or not, it's the use of it. And I learned that from one of my uncles who had dealt in um, uh, restaurant equipment. Hey, it's not the stove in your restaurant that's going to... Uh, make you a great restaurant it's using that stove so he would always tell his clients um lease lease the stove <laughs> don't spend all your capital and all that money up front buying all this new equipment when you can lease and get going and use it and start making money and so you apply that same simple little principle <laughs> to uh if build it or don't build it uh, type thinking and you just build the right things that add value and um and then you know you can focus on those and that'll make what you do build a lot more high quality because you're really kind of focusing on the right thing yeah there's a really interesting um issue there which is that a lot of people who write code love doing it um and which is which is a good thing but what it does mean is that you can just find yourself down a fascinating path that's inherently enjoyable has all kinds of like reinforcement feedback in it. Yeah. Uh, and even whole teams can go down these paths and build something really interesting that is totally unnecessary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've seen people take a three-hour or a three-day project and turn it into a three-week or a three-month uh, science experiment. And, you know, it's great if the company can afford it and, you know, there's no really dead, no deadline or deliverable. And, you know, we're making so much money, who matters, you know, do what you want to do, you know, if that great, if that's mm -hmm. your situation, great. But a lot of companies don't have that kind of um, capacity to, to allow that. So, um, and, and I learned that early in my career, I had an architect tell me, I was saying, well, we should do this. It's so cool. This is like, this would solve that problem. I could do this and, and we can build it and it's going to take like two or three weeks to build it. He's like, Matt, uh, if you want to do something cool, do that on your own time. Nobody's stopping you. And at first when he said that, I was really upset and I'm like, why would he tell me that? And then later he told me, the reason why he told me that is we need to focus on our client 
and give them what they need for their business and to solve that solution and give it to them as quickly as possible um, so we're not delaying um, delaying their execution. And it made a lot of sense. And so we did revisit and we built what we talked about, but it was much later when it was the right time and place to do it. So that could happen, but really it's all about does it add value or not or not? Yeah, I would say that was a, a risky, a risky move telling you to do it on your own time. One one approach we've taken towards that kind of thing in uh in Lean Pub for the sake of retention and attracting very talented programmers is actually like explicitly giving them a science experiment as like yeah. part of part of what they do. Like, you know, there's going to be all programming involves a fair amount of drudgery and repetition and things like that. And you can be a brilliant person sitting there doing a non-brilliant person's tasks. And, uh, and sometimes like actually like having a portion of a developer's work time be devoted purposefully to something that's really, I mean, as, as you say, if you have the resources available to do and the independence yeah. available to do that, that can actually be a really good thing for attracting good people and keeping good people around. Oh yeah, definitely. And the consulting company I was working for at the time, they, they actually gave us um, several days a month to actually do that and to vote time to, to building out those frameworks and those tools uh, for the company and such, and to investigate or learn how to do it. And um, so they, they recognize the value. And I think a lot of, a lot of, um, Companies now are recognizing that they have like uh, hackathon days or hack days or develop days, or they're letting their um, uh, developers take time as part of their career development to study and uh, do plural site videos or training or in-depth uh, kind of research and things like that. So I've seen that, and that's 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 really. Um, I mean, I I love doing that too. Um, so I take advantage of that when I can, and if I can't. I will do it on my own time. <laughs> so I get, I, I get it in no matter what. The, um, the last question I want to ask you before we move on to the next part of the interview is uh, you, I mentioned earlier, you've got this concept of a code, a CSI or code scene investigator yeah. in the guide. And that is just like, it was just one of those things where it's like everything came together in my mind around what that concept is. Because I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm lean pubs resident non-programmer. I do do some programming. I do spend a fair amount of time looking at code, but yeah. I know, I know exactly what you mean by that. You know, like you've got, you've got to have, you've got to have forensic capability. You've got to look for clues. Uh, it can be kind of intense. Something very bad may have happened and, you're, yeah. and you've been brought in to try and at just at first figure out what, what happened and maybe even who did it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a chalk outline there on the street. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I think, you know, uh, as a consultant and, and going into different companies and seeing things under the hood, um, you'd be surprised um, what's behind the magic curtain, I guess, um, in some places. Um, but um, yeah, I think, I think, uh, it's probably from a, a lack of a lot of times a lack of technical leadership. Um, it's also a lack of uh, just being disciplined and sticking to um, a process or, or or such during the execution or development. But and it's not like developers don't want to do that. Sometimes they just don't have that. Maybe they've joined the company and it's already been two or three years in development you can't rewrite everything or change everything. There's, it's just the way it is. So you have to kind of adjust to that and say, okay, well, here's the crime scene. Uh, let's figure out what happened here. And, you know, how do we fix this, clean it up, figure out 
what we need to do to make sure it doesn't happen again type scenario um, and learn from it and, and move forward. But for me, a lot of it could be avoided um, uh, if you do the right things up front. Um, and a lot of that is really making sure you have that plan, that architecture, those designs and such, but then make sure the discipline to make sure it maintains that. And a lot of teams go through that process. They have peer um, peer reviews and uh, merge requests and pull requests and things like that to review code. But that's different than actually reviewing code informally or in a different context. Like, okay, let's walk through this whole thing. Let's run through the tests and see how the tests are doing. Let's see this or that. And when you're doing those things, um, you're actually uh, self-correcting as you go. So you pay as you go. And you have a you have a lot less or even sometimes no technical debt in some areas of your app. So you eliminate those uh, code code scene investigation. Uh, no yellow tape around uh, this component or no yellow tape around this module. It's like, oh, don't go in there. You know, um, everybody, every app has that little thing. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And well, and the tools that you have available can actually change the way you go about looking into the sources of problems, of course. This reminds me of a really great John Mulaney joke I can't help but share. So he's talking about, in one of his stand-ups, he talks about uh, what what it must have been like to do like crime scene investigation in like the 1920s before they had any DNA testing or anything like that. And so he, he envisions like a, like a detective in Chicago at a crime, at a murder scene. And um, uh, a, a sergeant comes in and goes, detective, detective, I found a pool of blood in the hallway. And the detective looks at him and goes, gross. Now back to my hunch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <that's> evidence. <laughs> but yeah, I definitely, I definitely recommend anybody uh, who's, who's, you know, involved in software uh, uh, development to check out this, this guide. I mean the book of course, but also the guide effective angular code reuse strategies and techniques. Both of these, both of the, the book and the guide are both about angular, which we didn't even get a chance to talk about. Uh, but I actually kind of didn't want to ask you about it because I wanted to talk about all the other things that these books are great for, which is all these principles and strategies and stuff like that. So even if you're not into Angular, um, these, these, these are, this is a great book and a great guide. Um, moving on to the last part of the interview where we talk about your, uh, work, your processes as an author, um, there are lots of platforms out there for writing books and publishing and selling books. Why did you decide to use LeanPub? Yeah, there were certain, it took me a while to find the right tool. And when I came across LeanPub, it started checking all the boxes. Um, for one, um, I, wanted, I wanted to write my book using Markdown. In my code editor that I use to write code and document and do other things. So it just felt like a natural to, to do it that way. Um, I also like the aspect of uh, version control and be able to have a, a GitHub repository that uh, maintained all that source. I could um, uh, do commits and branches and do all the stuff I would do writing code as I'm writing the book and kind of the same kind of thought mentality. Um, and it's very safe. It felt safe and secure that way and being able to push to a repository and have it uh, have the links or the hooks, the web hooks uh, to start kickoff builds or previews of the book. That was pretty awesome. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so those were the, probably the, the top things for me. And I also liked the, the aspect of, um, it seems like a lot of technical authors are on LeanPub. So it was a great 
great kind of uh, uh, opportunity there. It seems like, you know, a good fit. And then, um, you know, the ability for someone to even create their own price for a book, or if you wanted to offer the book free, um, for for quite a while now, I've been uh, offering the Angular Architecture Patterns book for free. Um, and uh, just because I feel people should just learn about this in, in, in any way they can. So I've been offering uh, these uh, publications for free. But it's interesting, even when you offer it for free, um, there are still a lot of um, individuals who want to support the effort and they'll buy the book. And I'm like, okay, thank you so much. That's, that's, that's just great. And, um, and, and I didn't write the book to become popular or famous because I don't really think I am popular or famous, uh, even in the Angular community. There's so many great people out there. But I just thought that I had a unique approach or a way of describing things or a message that I wanted to deliver. And um, I've had people or other publishing companies contact me about publishing books, and they basically gave me the outline. Um, that kind of doesn't really fit on like how I work or how I even want to approach the topic. So being able to do it my way was pretty awesome. So LeanPub was, was perfect. It checked all the boxes for me. Yeah, thanks for sharing all of that and for the positive words. We always really appreciate that. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know, it's interesting in addition to um, being a place that a platform that typically attracts technical people. Um, LeanPub also tends to attract kind of independent types as well. So these are sometimes it's people who've been approached by a publisher in a way like that, that they didn't really like or gave them a sense that it wouldn't be a good fit with the process. And other people are people who actually did go through it and hated it uh, and come out on the end going, I still want to write, but I just wish I had more. I just want to have all the control. Yeah. Uh, and then they're willing to forego the, the resources that um, uh, a publisher can give you because uh, the trade-off between the independence and the resources that are made available is just, you know, falls on the wrong side of the ledger for them. Um, one thing you mentioned as well uh, is, yeah, we, we've got, so for those listening who didn't quite sort of, who don't quite know, LeanPub has a variable pricing model. So if you publish a book on LeanPub, you can set a minimum price and a suggested price, and then people can choose what to pay. And as Matt's experience, it's something we've seen that's just thrilled us over the years is that often, if, even if a book has a minimum price of free, people will take the little slider and choose to pay for it. Uh, because they want to support the author. Uh, and we just, we just love seeing that and establishing, trying to establish that different kind of connection between the author and the reader than you might get through just a normal marketplace where it's just a straight up economic transaction and you try and get the most for the least. Um, so you're publishing the Angular Architecture Patterns book in progress. Uh, I believe it's 90%, Mark is 90% <laughs> done right now or something yeah. like that. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about what uh, your approach to in-progress publishing has been like. Did you set yourself yeah. deadlines and did you, did you have like launch announcements for new chapters or things like that? Yeah, I think, um, you know, there are a lot of different uh, kind of techniques in doing that. I mean, you could go chapter after chapter and um, use social media or your website or LinkedIn or whatever to kind of promote that and, you know, gain, gain the followers and such. Um, I actually wrote 80, 90% of the content before I actually made it available. I wanted to have it mostly complete. What's not complete. I think there's some diagrams in there that I really need to like polish and make and, and create. Um, or 
create some new hand hand handcrafted uh, drawings that like that 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 I use in my sketchbooks in my notebooks that I have stacks of and just put those in there because I think it's interesting it's like yeah I really this is how I do it on blank sheets of paper this is how I go through that process of drawing things out um I rarely I don't use Visio or any of these diagramming program tools as much anymore uh, to me it, pencil and paper is is my go to now um, and so a lot of the diagrams are kind of like that. And I, and I always had this idea, well, I'm going to go back and fix those diagrams and make them all pretty and this and that. But I think they're effective. They, they do um, give the context and such. So, but yeah, I think it's a great model uh, to be able to continually even revise and, and republish new content or fix something. And everyone who wants to be notified of some new edition or whatever, they can come back and download the new version. That's, that's awesome. Uh, the last question I always like to ask Lean Pub authors when they're guests on the podcast is if there was one thing we could build for you or one thing we could fix for you, what would you ask us to do? Uh, let's see. Well, for me, um, I'm kind of uh, graphic design uh, impaired. <laughs> so I'm like, I think, a, I think a book cover generator would be really cool. Um, there's probably apps out there's apps out there that do that kind of stuff. But, uh, for me, that was the hardest thing to kind of get together, uh, for the book, the content, the chapters, you know, the, the details, the code samples, all that was easy for me, but figuring out what a, what a book cover should look like. That was like the hardest thing in the world. <laughs> yeah. That's really interesting. So thank you for making that. Um, there are, there are apps out there that do that and there are sort of like relatively affordable resources like Fiverr yeah. or, or something like that right. where you can find designers, but it is actually, it is something that would be very useful to authors. Like even if it were, weren't, weren't like amazing just to have, cause right now when you publish a lean pub book, the cover we generate for you is just like some black words on a white background. Um, yeah. and having any, anything that better than that, because the thing is that a cover, especially in self-publishing, a good cover gives people, it's not just that it's attractive. It gives people confidence that whoever wrote the book put some care and attention into it. And that can make a big difference when someone's, if someone's deciding I'm going to buy this self-published half finished book, um, having a really good cover can really help get them to the other side of that transaction. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, oh, the cover was good. <laughs> you know, I find interesting. Um, I, I didn't know how this would even turn out, but um, I thought, oh, I, I imagine that at least half the people are just going to return the book or not like it or whatnot. But that hasn't been the case. Right? So I, that was for me, I guess it's kind of, um, you know, the imposter syndrome in me, I guess, thinking, oh, I'm not a book writer. Well, I'm not a book writer but I just have something to share. This is just a way to do it um, and such. So um, I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of people should, if they've ever wanted to try it, I think LeanPub makes it really easy in the process. If you're a tech tech guy and you already have a code editor and GitHub account, Oh, you should, you, you have content already. I bet that you could already just kind of just move right on in and there you go. You have a book. Yeah, it's really, it's really great to hear that. I mean, you know, sometimes, sometimes we get people, who, and just like with any product, we get people who are like, this thing makes absolutely no sense. What's wrong with you? And other people are like, oh my God, you built the thing that makes sense to me that I never even knew 
you know, could make sense to me. So yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad to hear you're on, you're oh, it's on, awesome. the, on the better yeah. side of that, of, of that deal. Yeah. I um, love, I love the notifications I get from, from lean pub uh, when there's a, a sale or, or even I've purchased books from other authors. And so when there's an update, I'm like, Oh, um, Manfred Stair has a new update on his enterprise architecture angular book. Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to go get that. Um, so, um, I, I try to keep pace with that as well. So I, I like that kind of uh, interactivity between, um, lean pub and, you know, if you're an author or you just like to read technical books, um, you could always uh, stay, stay connected. Yeah. Well, thanks very much for sharing that. And thanks very much for uh, being a guest on the podcast and for being a lean pub author. We really appreciate that. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a Lean Pub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.